Chapter 3 of California Desert Trails by Joseph Smeaton Chase. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 3 Trees and Tree Like Growths. Contrary to the general notion, the desert is far from being neglected by flora. Even in the matter of trees, she has denied to a few valuable and interesting kinds the territory they would have preferred and has bestowed them on these unkind regions where they are a first-class boon to the scanty animal life that shares their hardships. There is a good assortment of shrubs, too, and of the smaller growths a surprisingly large number, though it is only in spring that most of these show themselves. For the rest of the year they exist only in embryo as seeds, or as a final minimum of brittle stems and shriveled leafage, making no contrast in the universal drab, yet the hope and support to the forlorn cattle that stray with melancholy steps and slow about the parched and starving ranges. Among the trees, the palm Washingtonia filifera claims first place, though I always feel that the name of tree hardly applies to these columnar shapes, so opposite to our thought of outreaching branch, shady gallery, and spreading contour but I have spoken of the palm at length in another chapter. And, after all, it is rather an incident of the desert than a characteristic, appearing only sporadically and, as a rule, about the margins of the territory, limited always to the rare spots that yield the needful conditions of moisture. The principal desert tree is the mesquite. Of this, there are two species, differing in size, mode of growth, and some other details, the most noticeable of which is the seeding. The larger, Prosopis glandulosa, bears a typical bean. The other, Prosopis pubescens, a unique seed vessel exactly like a rather large screw. From this feature, the latter tree takes the name of screw bean or tornillo, the Spanish word for screw. The larger mesquite is the one of great benefaction of nature to her desert dwellers. Were it only in the matter of shade, what song should be raised to it by man, bird, and beast, and indeed are raised by sparrow, wren, linnet, and to the best of his ability by that arch-black sprite, Fainapipla, who thinks the topmost spray of a mesquite is the cap of the universe. Reptile and insect revel in it too, for as I write these pages under the shade of a mesquite, driven from my tent by a mid-morning March temperature of 108 degrees, I am buzzed and bitten by gnats and flies of all degrees, cobwebbed by spiders, explored by serious beetles, and adopted by caterpillars as a happy idea. Nimble lizards scamper about, sniping my tormentors. Every mesquite is a green caravanserai, and one that is patronized to the full. These islands of shade are naturally the preferred spots for camping places by desert travelers, and that they have been so from of old may be known by the presence near them of unusual quantities of the broken pottery that everywhere amazes one by tokens of the large populations that the desert once supported. In places, mesquite thickets may still be found that extend for miles, though near the railway great stretches have been cleared for cultivation, and the wood, which makes excellent fuel, is regularly sold in the towns and cities of the coast. The aboriginal passion for rabbit would itself render these tickets the pick of the desert real estate to the Indian, for they are always alive with bouncing bunnies, 
easy targets for his arrows or throwing clubs. The mesquite is also evidence of water, though not necessarily of water near the surface, as in the case of the palm. Far down below the burning surface sands, the great cable-like roots of the mesquite go, searching for the beds of water-bearing gravel, and the plant that shows only a five-foot tangle of thorny scrub above ground may have roots running to ten times that depth. As the sand is constantly heaped higher about the mesquite by the wind, the plant struggles to keep its head above the drift, and in places, as at Seven Palms, mile-long dunes have formed that show a mere fuzz of twigs above ground, while your feet may be tripped by the great cylindrical roots as thick as your leg and almost as hard and rigid as iron, from which the sand has been blown away. In examining a small one of these roots, with a thickness of about two inches and looking like a smooth brown rope stretched taut, I noted that in a distance of twenty feet it showed no variation of diameter. Besides its boons of game, fuel, shade, and possibly water, the mesquite yields food for man and beast and insect. The vivid young green of late February becomes tinged in March with clouds of fragrant yellow catkins. This is the bonanza of the thrifty desert bees. Now or never they must restock those rows of empty golden honey pots in the rocky cranny of the hillside, and they go to the work with all the proverbial ardor plus the stimulus of needful haste. Later, the mesquites form the great harborage for those most objectionable creatures, the cicadas. All day the thickets ring with their nerve-racking pipings, like the whiz of steam escaping under high pressure. I frankly hate these insects for their way of dashing out and squirting at one a spray of some vile secretion. I was puzzled to account for these disgusting anointings which fell upon me even at night, until, camping under a big mesquite near Indio, I tracked the offenders down. That camp, by the by, deserves description as illustrating the possibilities of growth of the mesquite. Other wayfarers, probably Indians or Mexicans, had used the place before me, and had spent no little labor on making it convenient. From the outside, it was a dome-shaped, isolated clump, a hundred yards or so in circumference, and perhaps fifteen feet in height. A sort of tunnel had been cut leading to the center, which, when reached, revealed the fact that the whole clump was one enormous tree. The short butt, a yard or so in diameter, broke into several big recumbent branches, which went rambling on about on hands and knees, all crooks and elbows, and threw out a young forest of twigs and branchlets cantankerously thorny. Near the main stem there was ample space and headroom for camp quarters, and the friend who left his comfortable Pasadena bungalow to visit me there had no fault to find with the accommodation, though he had now and then with the temperature. It was pleasant at odd hours to listen to the conversations of a family of gamble quail that shared our mesquite with us, Pater's loud, clear call, or quieter admonishments of Mrs. G, answered by absent-minded twitterings or headlong scamperings of the youngsters. At this camp, Kawea had to be picketed outside, but in a similar mesquite clump that furnished me quarters for a week a few miles farther on my way, a stable had been installed by some predecessor, with a manger and room for two or three horses. There was ample space here also for an average family's camp requirements. 
the mesquite yields excellent food for both man and beast one authority says that the bean of which husk and all are used contains over fifty per cent of practicable food elements the indians nowadays do not call on it to the extent they did formerly when the meal ground by the squaws from the beans of this plant was the staple of their diet though they still use it freely but horses and needless to say the omnivorous burros and the desert cattle rejoice at the sight of a bean-hung mesquite many times during expeditions that took us far out of range of orthodox fodder the situation has been saved for Kawea by our finding a mesquite or two the twigs pendant with plump clusters and the ground whitened with the fallen fruit i sometimes feared that dislocation of the neck would be his portion as i watched his giraffe-like maneuvers over the capture of some coy high-hung monabucha nature did a kind turn to her deserving poor when she reserved the mesquite for the desert the screw bean is a more spindling tree sparser of foliage and content with poorer alkaline soils where the other mesquite seldom cares to dwell it is equally good perhaps even better as a source of food but has little to offer in the way of shade a mere thin grayness that scarcely breaks the stroke of the sun in the diary of that fine borovian character fray francisco hermenengildo garces who was roaming these deserts with the enthusiasm of an explorer as well as a missionary in the years just about the birth time of this nation on the other side of the continent one easily identifies the tornillo when he writes that he has found a tree that bears screws flora had one of her quaintest fancies when she fashioned these odd seed vessels which one finds sprinkled in tousled clusters all over the tree next in size to claim attention is the palo verde cercidium torianum to give the spanish a literal translation it would be the green stick or more suavely the greenwood tree it has no recognized english name and to speak of it as the greenwood tree raises a most incongruous association of ideas shades of arden what a difference yet the spanish name taken literally is apt enough for green the tree certainly is vivid green and green all over only one must banish all thought of whispering forest and woodsy lawn an odd thing is that this very green tree is a tree almost without leaves at least the leaves are so small and so short-lived as well as to cut little figure in the general effect it is the skeleton of the tree trunk branches branchlets and twigs that is green a green vivid and smooth though the butt of the very old palo verde may be roughened and blackened by age such scanty foliage as the tree puts forth in spring in response to some old vernal urge still strong after ages of forced adaptation to desert conditions falls by early summer and leaves the airy broom-like branches bare against the china blue of the sky often the branches are hung with great globes of the desert mistletoe for a dendron so dense as to look like bee swarms adding to the remarkable appearance of the tree the palo verde however is a miracle for bloom in mid-march it takes on a tinge of yellow and soon each twig becomes a jeweled chain petals of whimsical gold set with chips of ruby for anthers its other spanish name lluvia de oro shower of gold then fits it well for charm and profusion of bloom it is the desert's premier tree 
and reminds me often of that glory of England's spring, the laburnum. Ah, those Tamside gardens, spilling their overflow of lilac and laburnum over old rosy brick walls. Those seawashed Devon villages, each cottage plot a bower of floral gold. Those steep lakeland streets, which I used to climb with you, lady of my dedication, to the dark-furred beacon, each garden raining yellow largesse upon its neighbor next below. Excuse the lapse, good reader, and in return I will wish that you may never know the sharpness of exile. On the side of usefulness, the Palo Verde has its virtues as well. Its beans are grist for the pestle and mortar of the Indian squaw, and though usually a small tree, it is capable of growth to a size that would furnish lodgment to man. There is a Palo Verde near the mouth of Deep Canyon that I take to be the Goliath of its tribe. The trunk at its narrowest above ground is eight and a quarter feet in girth, the largest limb five feet around, and the space covered by the tree has a circumference of seventy yards. For the desert, that is a triumph of tree growth. I do not know of another Palo Verde that comes to half its size. The smoke tree, Parocela spinosa, may hardly be called a tree, though sometimes tree-like in size of stem. More common than the Palo Verde, it is always a strange and noticeable object. It, too, is leafless, but it is wholly pale gray, a mass of prickly interlaced twigs that, at a distance, has much the look of a cloud of smoke. It is the characteristic plant of the desert washes or watercourses. I have often found the beds of these fugitive streams filled for miles with this ghostly semblance of a river. To see this phantom river come winding out, snake-light upon the plains from some red mysterious canyon, brings nightmare thoughts of the grim genie, thirst and famine, that might here have their abode. In early summer one may see this torrent turn suddenly from gray to liveliest color. The smoke tree, like the Palo Verde, makes up for absence of foliage by a huge burst of blossom. In this case, it is blue, the purest ultramarine, each tree a cloud of small pea-like flowers that, as they shrivel and fall, collect in windrows like drifts of azure snow. Another name for the tree is indigo bush, though the true hue of the blossom is not indigo. Yet another is desert cedar, which is totally without point. Some day a painter will chance upon this site, and at danger of death by thirst, will refuse to move from the spot until he has fixed upon canvas the desert at its highest color power. He had better, though, be a painter unusually reckless of his reputation, for all the world will swear he lies. The smoke tree gives me occasion to voice an old grudge that I have long held against the botanical tribe. Harmless, even kindly, as botanists in general appear, how is it that they take delight in embittering the lives of laymen by their eternal juggling with the names of genre and species? If they really wish to discourage us poor popular chaps, all right, let them say so, and we can turn to something lighter, say eugenics or those frivolous things, conic sections. For many a year the smoke tree and its relatives were known to all the world as of the genus Dalea. Today the puzzled amateur finds that name tacked to a quite different class of plants, and only by chance recognizes his old acquaintance under the title of Barosela. And this is but one case in a long and grievous list. 
when i hear of convocations of botanists i smile and say this is no innocent convention what are they up to now often found near the smoke tree in the gravelly washes is a desert willow chelopsis linearis it is not really a willow and only slightly resembles that tree in its leafage and irregular shape in size however this often becomes a genuine tree and i have found specimens with trunks two feet thick and an area of thirty yards diameter or more the notable feature of this tree also is its flower which is a large fragile orchid-like blossom white relieved with lavender and yellow and very delicately scented there is something childlike about it a hint of dainty pinafores in the crinkled edges of the petals altogether a rare undesert-like bloom in the withering summer heat of a torrent bed there is refreshment in meeting these airy blossoms with their fresh cool look and gentle fragrance a thought of violence and primroses and mossy woodland ways the desert willow blooms profusely and remains long in flower the fruit is a long narrow bean which on shedding its seeds leaves the tree hung with silky gray pods that flutter in the wind like pennons on the lances of indian warriors one true tree remains the ironwood olnea tesota called arbol de fierro or palo fierro alternative hierro in spanish meaning iron tree or ironwood this is a sturdy trim well-branched growth reminding one of a well-shaped apple tree the foliage is abundant yielding welcome shade and the wood is exceedingly hard and makes excellent fuel its dull blue flowers are not especially attractive and it bears beans that so far as i know are not eaten by man or beast though i have seen my horse nibble the young leaves with a resigned air when sugary mesquite humdrum galleta grass and even that furniture polish sort of stuff burrowweed have all left us in the lurch the ironwood has not a wide range and one might travel the desert for a long time without meeting it in the northeastern part of the Colorado desert, not far from the river, there is a little visited range of hills called the Ironwood Mountains, or sometimes the McCoys. On their southern outskirts, I rode for hours through what, for the desert, might be called a forest of these trees, some of which had trunks more than two feet in diameter. There is a widely distributed straggling bush that, at a cursory glance, looks rather like an unthrifty mesquite it is the cat claw acacia gregii an affectionate creature that grapples you to its soul with hooks of steel and loves to keep you there taking a double hold for every claw you gently disengage the leaf is mesquite-like but smaller and finer the blossom is also similar a fuzzy catkin and the fruit a curious curly bean that dries into gouty-looking contortions you will not go far on the desert without meeting the cat claw nor will you part without cursing it. A feature of all desert trees except the palm is the great quantity of mistletoe, Phoradendron californicum, they often carry. It is a common thing to see mesquites in which one half of the bulk of the tree is made up of dense masses of this parasite. It has no leaves, but in spring carries berries of a pretty coral color. Though classed by botanists as a false mistletoe, it has, I know, played the good old Christmas part with entire success. In speaking of the ironwood as the last true tree of the desert, 
I must not overlook three other plants that, in size, may deserve the name. The tree yucca, or Joshua tree, the ocotillo, or candlewood, and that giant of the cacti, the saguaro. They are hardly to be thought of as trees, however, but rather as growths allied to trees, but wanting in almost all tree-like features. The first is yucca arborescens, of the tribe of that Spanish bayonet which is so common about the foothills of Southern California, and so noticeable for its gigantic spike of cream-colored flowers. The Joshua tree, so named, it is said, by Mormon immigrants who, meeting these eccentric growths as they neared the end of their long march, hailed them as heralds of the promised land, is more typical of the Mojave than of the Colorado desert, but it extends southward into the mountain ranges that divide the twin desolations. It is a weird, menacing object, more like some conception of pose or dores than any work of wholesome mother nature. One can scarcely find a term of ugliness that is not apt for this plant. A misshapen pirate, with belt, boots, hands, and teeth stuck full of daggers, is as near as I can come to a human analogy. The wood is a harsh, rasping fiber. Knife blades, long, hard, and keen, fill the place of leaves. The flower is greenish-white and ill-smelling, and the fruit is a cluster of nubbly pods, bitter and useless. A landscape filled with Joshua trees has a nightmare effect even in broad daylight. At the witching hour, it can be almost infernal. The Ocotillo, Fuquiera splendens, commonly but wrongly taken for a cactus, is to me the most striking and characteristic of the desert plants. In it are expressed the desert's intrinsic qualities, its haggardness and gray sterility, its cruelty of thorn and claw, its fierce hot beauty. In a landscape crowded with these lean, sinuous shapes, as one finds them filling great tracts of the barrenest desert of the Colorado, one feels an added wildness and fascination. Of the cacti, a few are really beautiful, many interesting or quaint, others ugly but grotesque. The beauty of the Ocotillo is the beauty of Cleopatra or Carmen, fierce and fatal. The scarlet streamer that comes in spring at the tip of every stem is like a darting dragon's tongue. A company of ocotillos writhing in a hurricane makes as eerie a sight as anything I know in the vegetable realm. In shape, the ocotillo is a sheaf of thin, whip-like canes from six to eight to twenty feet long, spreading more or less widely from a main stump near the ground. The canes are closely armed with curving thorns, which give the plant a cactus-like appearance. For nine or ten months of the year, it stands gaunt, leafless, seemingly lifeless, and one strange feature is the suddenness with which, on the coming of the rains, it changes from dead, dry gray to living green. Small leaves appear, as if by magic, and feather the canes with vivid green. The canes themselves become a delicate lavender. Even the thorns put on a half-inviting look and entice the unwary to closer acquaintance. Then a flower spike starts from the tip of each cane, and bursts into a flame-like tongue a foot or so long, made up of scores of tubular scarlet and yellow blossoms. I have been told that the flowers of the Ocotillo are used as food by some of the desert Indians. I tried them once, but failed to find them attractive. But I had no recipe. Perhaps they should be served with a tarantula sauce or stewed with lizard's tails. 
The giant cactus, Cereus giganteus, Spanish saguaro, is a common object to the Arizona deserts, but in California is only represented to the extent of a few individuals, probably not many over a hundred all told, that have gained a footing on the western bank of the Colorado. It too is an abnormal plant, but not an ugly one. Indeed, it is beautiful in an outlandish kind of way, but so far is it removed from all the shapes that we think of as trees, that it might be a type of vegetation belonging to Mars or the Moon. Ordinarily, the saguaro, for ten or fifteen feet of its height, is a single dark green column, regularly ridged or fluted, and set with rosettes of spines. Then it sends out arms, one or a very few, which stand up parallel with the main stem, or it may divide into a number of equal branchings, taking the form of a candelabrum. A mature saguaro may be fifty feet high or more, but the tallest specimen I found on the California side of the river was not over forty feet. It was an odd-shaped, untypical growth with a few stumpy arms that looked as if they had been amputated. In nearly every saguaro, one finds a number of neat round holes, the entrances originally to woodpeckers' nests, but often used rent-free by that quaint little goblin the elf-owl, Micropallus whitneyi, the tom-thumb of his tribe, hardly six inches high when full-grown. My tallest saguaro must have had a score of these holes, a veritable hotel or skyscraper of owls. I was disappointed that I could not make camp beside it, but I think I can warrant any other traveler who may do so some pretty weird music for his lullaby. The plant bears large, waxy blossoms that grow directly on the stem and branches, and the fruit is a first-class luxury to the Indians. When the red flood of sunset comes on those great plains and hill slopes where no other object breaks the far expanse, while the ancient river moves silently on to the lonely gulf and the mysterious sea, and the traveler steps halt under that old spell of evening, then the dark, upward-pointing finger of the saguaro gives an added solemnity to that impression of the vast, unchanging, and elemental, which is the eternal note of the desert. End of chapter 3